0: Okay, there we go. So this is the Theology two class, and this is the beginning of our fall quarter. And so you will you should have a schedule. If you don't, there's some over there that kind of show you um, the rough outline for the fall semester. It shows you when we have a week off due to maybe like a congregational meeting. Um, so thankfully, we don't have very many weeks yet that uh, <laughs> hopefully doesn't change too much that are interrupted. And we've also you'll notice we've expanded uh Uh, the length of the quarter, the tri-quarter, whatever you want to call it. Um, So it's 16 weeks instead of 12. And that should be nice, allow us to have some uh, more time to slow down a bit, discuss more, and not feel like we're having to just like, I don't know, just like, I feel like we just have to mow through everything so fast. There's so much to do in so few weeks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Theology two is uh, just um, a continuation of where we were at in theology one, but do not fret if you weren't here for the previous quarter. You're not um, necessarily. It's not like a, you know watching a, a trilogy of movies where if you, if you didn't get the first movie, you're going to be lost in the second one. So that's not the case. But in the last quarter, we did study theology proper, and so we st- uh, started off as everyone should when you're studying theology with a study of who God is and, and a proper understanding staying there then leads us to um, the next important thing to study in doctrine and is that is a, a theology of man or if you want the $10 uh, word it's anthropology okay that comes from the the Greek term anthropos for, for man so the study of man and this is a, a really important doctrine you'll see in the schedule I'm gonna turn the AC down here um, you'll see in our, if you look at the outline, we're going to be talking about anthropology, hamardiology, which is the study of sin. So again, uh, from the Greek word for sin, ha- hamart is from is from the Greek. And soteriology, okay, again, is based off the Greek word soter, which is uh, salvation in the Greek New Testament. So we are going to be studying anthropology, study of man, study of sin, study of salvation. And it is a purposely done in that order, um, as we'll see here in just a minute. But look at your handout. So this handout, we're actually only gonna have two handouts this whole quarter. Uh, So this one, and then you'll get another one later. But so hold on to this. If you lose it, we can give you a new one. But uh, this is gonna be what we're gonna use as a springboard to dive into the various topics. So, the question in the introduction here on page one is, what is man? This question has enormous implications. How we answer this question will determine our mission in life, our view of morality, how we relate to other humans and the world around us. Consider how each of the following definitions would impact one's goals, morality, and relationships. So one view of anthropology or man is that man is a most highly evolved animal on the planet. Another view would say man is a vehicle for an immortal soul. When he dies, karma will dictate which vehicle carries the soul in the next life, a cockroach or maybe you become a king. Letter C, the, the third view would see man as a sophisticated composition of mass and energy. These are some kind of the prevailing uh, worldviews outside of Christian circle of what man is. So if you just look at those three, what do you think, if you were to live that way, if you were to have that mindset that like man is the most, most highly evolved animal on the planet, how would that impact your goals in life, your morality, and your relationships? Probably live to please yourself. Live to please yourself. and' you know. And just as a reminder, if you weren't in the previous quarter, I, I often repeat your answers, not because I'm hard of hearing or, or anything, I, um, but for the sake of the recording. And sometimes people in the back can't always hear, so. You consider everything else is there to be used by you or for you? Yeah. Everything else around you is used, is meant for you to be used. What about the letter B there? Man is a vehicle for an immortal soul. When he dies, karma will dictate which vehicle carries the soul into the next life, a cockroach or even a king. How would that impact your goals and relationships in life? motivation to be a good person okay be a good person motivation to try and do why, why why would that motivate you why would you need that motivation I don't want to be a cockroach, I don't want to be a cockroach in the next life that's right i rather be a king yeah what else What about letter C? Man is a sophisticated composition of mass and energy. How would that impact your goals, morality, and relationships? It would take away the meaning of a lot of it. Okay, yeah, there wouldn't be much meaning to life, would there? kind of get into, like, an existential crisis. Like, what's the point? What's the purpose? We're all just a bunch of stardust colliding into each other. Well, it doesn't matter what I do in life. It actually, you know, this, I think even too with the evolutionist mindset, just that you really have no uh, foundation uh, for morality. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. And if you do think it matters, well, yeah, nobody should be mean to each other. You have no reason to say that. If somebody says, well, I like what you have, and I'm going to steal it, you have no moralistic foundation and grounds to say you shouldn't do that. Or well, we're just evo- evolved animals. Or we're just a composition of energy and mass. So it's like, who cares? Contrary to the last one, it takes away the motivation yeah. of, of anything. It, yeah, it's, like you just said, it's like, it's all an accident anyway. Mm-hmm. Cosmic accident. The Big Bang, right? It's just an accident. It's just perchance that we're here. And and there's no afterlife, so w- whatever. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Live it up now. Live your best life now, because there's nothing afterwards. People and resources are just meant for you to be used, and the goal of life is to just gain as much pleasure as possible, to have as much comfort as possible. And if that means stepping over on top of other people to achieve that, that's yeah, fine. If you don't step on someone else, they're going to step on you. So what's interesting is these three worldviews, what they have in common is that they look at how man relates to the world only. They do not look to how God or man relates to God. And so that's why it's important to study theology of man, the anthropology. And we got done studying the theology of God, but now it's time to understand how man relates to so great and almighty, and holy, and magnificent of a God. So now we have a better understanding of who God is. It's pre- now we have to turn to our attention to ourselves. And if you're sharing the gospel, the kind of way we're going on this route uh, through these theology classes is similar to how you would want to present the gospel. If you're talking to the gospel with somebody, I always like Greg Gilbert's simple outline. You start with God, right? the fact that there is a Creator, and then you move to man to talk about man and his problem. Then you talk about Christ, salvation, and then you call, talk about a response, God, man, Christ, response, a simple outline of salvation. And the, the way we're studying through theology is a very similar idea, though we're diving into the deep end of each of those categories. But why do you guys think it's an important place? But, you know, we're going to talk about salvation uh, and sin, but why is it an important, do you think, to start talking about man before we talk about salvation? Why not just just jump in and start talking about grace? Start talking about faith. I think you have to define the problem before you supply the answer. Yeah, that's good. You have to define the problem before you give the answer, right? We talk about the good news, right? One of time I share the gospel, I'll say, in order to have good news, there is logically bad news that precedes that. And you have to understand the bad news first. Otherwise, you won't care about the good news. You know, the the bad news is what bruises our conscience. It's what um, humbles man to see his need for so great a Savior. The gospel is not you have a puzzle missing inside your heart, a felt need, and Jesus will fill it for you. You just you're missing out on being truly satisfied in life, and Jesus he, he'll he'll fill and meet that need for you. That sounds nice, but that's not the way the, gospel, the scriptures present the gospel. And so it's important to uh, look at all of what scripture has to say on the issue, because one of the things we learn from the word is that our hearts are deceitful. Right, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then it says right after that, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So the Lord understands it, and he reveals these things to us through his word. But we have to con- come to the scriptures knowing my heart is sick sometimes. My heart is deceived. I self-deceive myself. I, I don't understand God as fully as I should or as I ought, and so when I come to God's Word, I have to kind of have that predisposition. I have to kind of come going, oh boy, I do not know everything I should, and even the things I know, I probably don't know them as well as I should, and so I need God's help to understand things better. Another passage that would um, help us see that as well is in Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 8-9, through nine, Says, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. So we also have to come to the table and okay, I struggle with being deceived in my heart, I struggle with pride, and God's ways naturally are not my ways. We we come to the table and we think, man, if I were God, I would do it this way. Or it's often more subtle than that. When we read something in Scripture and we don't really like it, it's like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't like that. I don't like that God is sovereign over salvation. I don't like that God is sovereign over every detail. I don't like that he chooses to save some and not others. I don't like that. But we have to say, okay, well, is that what Scripture teaches? And is that because God's ways are not my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts? So there's a disposition when we come to God's word where we have we want to say we want to hold this up as the ultimate authority and say whatever this says I'm going to conform my heart to it and I need God's help to do that rather than holding it down here saying I'm going to conform the, God's word to whatever my heart feels and thinks about the situation. So it's important to study, start and study with anthropology, just knowing our natural inclinations and our problems, as Gabe said, um, that we need to be saved from. So let's look at that. We'll start with anthropology. Look at here, uh, this is Roman numeral 2, the subheading A, the creation and composition of man. So this is getting into the basics of what is mankind. What are we? Genesis 2.7 is our foundational verse. It says, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So, just looking at that verse alone, what are just some observations from the text, just from this single verse? What are some things you guys see in that verse that help explain what we are? What is mankind? We are God's creation, yep. He formed us. Kind of Potter language there. We are his masterpiece. Yeah, we are his masterpiece. That's good. Those might seem like simple observations, but there's simple observations is what's good. I always love the line from Sherlock Holmes where he chides Watson. He says, Watson, you only see but you do not observe. All right, so it's easy to often look at the text all the time, read the text, but not observe the text and make simple observations about what it's saying. So when we say there God created us, it's like, well, duh. But that's not so dull, right? I mean, the most of the world does not believe that. And yet it's a simple truth that Lord God formed man. We did not initiate that. We did not start that. God himself took charge in the creation of man. Why do you guys think it's important that we remember God created us? So now we're moving from observation to an application. Simple truth. But why is that important for us to remember? We didn't evolve. We did not evolve. Turn to Jeremiah 18 if you have your Bibles. Open them there. Swipe in your, bio, in your phone if you got that, whatever. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, go past uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs. You see Isaiah, Jeremiah, the big prophets, the major prophets here there. Jeremiah 18, we're looking at verse 5, 5 through 10. I have a volunteer to read that. Jeremiah 18, 5 through 10. Volunteer? Okay, go ahead. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent. And not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Good. Thank you. So, what is that verse? What do those verses kind of help us understand why it's important to remember? That God is the creator. He's in control. He's in control. If you were to summarize those verses, what God is saying to Israel through Jeremiah, how would you summarize it in like one sentence? Making you guys work hard this morning. Obey me, and I will bless you. Okay, that's one way you can summarize it. The way I summarize it, yeah. If you don't obey me, yeah, it would be a warning. Um, the way I would summarize it is, I'm God. I can do what I want with you. I am the Potter. You are the clay. I can destroy a nation if I want to, and I can bless a nation if I want to, because you are the created. That's a very, very different view than the, what the, a lot of people in the world have of God. And it's one that even chafes in, within Christian circles as well. We, I really think, um, I'm very thankful for the democratic republic in which we live in. But... It has done us a disservice in understanding God's sovereignty at times, because we have a say in everything that happens in the state level, local level, state, federal level, we get to vote. We don't like somebody, we vote them out, right? We vote in people, we have we're we're all about freedom, America. Okay. But most of the history and people did not struggle to understand what it meant to have a sovereign ruler. A guy who was in charge and whatever he said he could do. And you were powerless. I always like the illustration of Solomon when he has the two prostitutes arguing in front of him about whose baby is who, and he says, bring me a sword. I'm going to cut this baby in half. Nobody says, you can't do that. He can do that. He's the king. Nobody can stop him. God is the creator. We are the created. He can do whatever he wants with us. We were created by him, for him. So, what does that imply about how we should relate to God? With humility? With humility? Absolutely. about fear. When we talk about fear of the Lord, that's not something that's preached on in churches a lot. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, right? Fear of the Lord does not mean terrified, but we just got done reading in Jeremiah 18 that God destroys nations who sin against Him and blesses them. That should cause some fear. I always like the illustration of gun safety, right? Um, If you grew up around a gun, uh, you might not be as uh, scared or terrified of it because you're used to it, but you should probably have a healthy fear of the gun, right? You don't just take a loaded gun and point it at people or point it at yourself, right? That thing can kill you and kill others. So there's a sense when you are holding a loaded weapon, your senses are on alert, heightened, You are sobered in what you are doing with your actions. Same thing with the Lord. You don't have to be terrified of God when you're in Christ, but you are at the same time sobered at who you are talking about, whose presence you are in, and you are aware of your actions and your thoughts when you fear the Lord. The same thing there. So when we think about how this uh, this I create our relationship between creation and creator, there should be I think a sense of fear, humility as you brought out, and submission. He created me, and if He says I need to be doing something, I ought to be doing it. And we see that throughout Scripture. You go to Romans nine, or Romans nine, and some other passages where uh, it, it's it's it's. Um, uh, Crazy for the creation to say to the creator, "Why did you make me this way? Why should I do what you say?" Be like somebody painting a a portrait, and that portrait all of a sudden coming to life and be like, "I don't like what you did." What? Are you, who are you? All right, it's the same idea. Now, did uh, what? Uh, what does this verse? We go back to Genesis two seven, looking at some observations. What did God make us out of? God. Dust, dust, earth, material. He didn't create us out of nothing, ex nihilo. You know, he spoke and things came to be, right? Uh, You think of the creation account, he said light, and there was light. It came out of nothing. And that's the the Latin phrase, ex nihilo. You'll hear theologians say, out of nothing. He created the earth itself, the waters, out of nothing. But he didn't create man out of nothing. He didn't just say, Adam, there he goes. He took dust, something he had already created out of nothing, took the dust from the ground. And that's an interesting uh, thing to note. And that's why we see a lot of the imagery used throughout the Bible of this potter and the clay. God skillfully formed us out of dust. This is um, something that grates against any notion that man evolved from monkeys. (laughs) The kill shot there. In addition, as as with the rest of creation, God deemed the result of his craftsmanship to be good. But at the point when God forms us out of the ground, we're not living yet. So another observation at the bottom of page one would be that man is not living until God breathes life into him, according to Genesis 2.7. It says, He deformed him, man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This has some ramifications to it, one being that death occurs when the breath of life leaves the body, and it has an, uh, a ramification or implication that man is not just a body, right? We talked about the worldview um, of evolution, that uh, man evolved from monkeys, or that man is just mass and energy, but this goes against that. Man is not just um, carbon, Man is not just flesh and bone. He is a body filled with the very breath of God. That is what distinguishes, beyond just a word, man versus animal, that is what distinguishes man from animal. He has the breath of God in him. You don't see that, that phrase used about all the animals God created him. He did not breathe into the animal's nostrils. Only man has both a body and a spirit. But man is a body and a spirit. (laughs) If he lacks either of these, he is no longer a man. Now, it's interesting, there are actually a lot of words uh, not listed in your handout that the Bible uses to describe the composition of man. There are um, words like soul. So man has a spirit or a soul, and the the words for the, there in the Hebrew are interesting. Uh, for spirit, you get the word ruach in Hebrew, which is the word used for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is holy uh, ruach. Man has a spirit. Um, it's also the word used for wind. So the Hebrew language is very economical. One word to kind of describe a lot of things. We think the wind is invisible, and so is our spirit. Soul is also another common word you'll see to express the immaterial aspect of man, something the dimension that is uh, of the part of the part of our being that's not uh, physical. And it's important though to uh, to note this. Um, it is common for us to think that we are two. There's two components to us. There's a physical and a spiritual part of us, and we see the. Scriptures talk about body and, and a soul. So, right, there's two parts of us. Uh, but that really comes from a, a, a Greek thinking that we're just these two compartmentalizations. And often in the Greek thought, especially during the New Testament era, people would think that the body was bad. It was the dirty part of us, and the spirit is good. But that is not the uh, intention of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Man is always viewed holistically. A complete thing. Yes, we have a body, and yes, we have a spirit, but it's kind of like when we talked in Theology 1 about God and His attributes. Yes, there's a lot of different ways in which God um, reveals Himself to us, loving, uh, just, righteous, but God is not the sum total of all His parts. He is one whole being. We also are one whole being. We're not a body and a soul. We are a body-soul, and so when you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have to be careful not to like uh, divide us um, in, where the Bible does not. There's not a clear division. And what, there's some passages that I love that really help um, bring this uh, thought home clearly, because it's so important, and particularly when you think about biblical counseling. We are so intertwined in our being, body and soul, there is no clear division. There is no clear division. So... Another way to say that that's helpful in application is that what happens to our body impacts our soul. And what happens to our soul impacts our body. Let me give you an example. Psalm 32. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to go real quick here for sake of time. Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, David is uh, expressing a penitential psalm. He's talking about some sin that he had kept hidden. And he says this in verses 3 and through 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all, the, all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So here Paul's talking about unconfess or Paul <laughs> David is talking about unconfessed sin. A spiritual aspect, right? To have sin on your account that you have not confessed is a spiritual thing, metaphysical, we could say. Um, but yet he says because of that, his body was wasting away. His bones wasted away. He was groaning. He was exhausted. He had no energy. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There you have an example of the spiritual aspect of us affecting his physical body. And then vice versa in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says in verse 1 Blessed. Happy is another way to uh, interpret, uh, translate that. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So there you see the opposite. When, our, when we have a clean conscience, which is a gift from the Lord, when we have no sins uh, hindering our relationship with the Lord, we are happy, joyful. Everyone knows what it's like to be racked with conviction when we're struggling with a sin as a believer. And it is not until we confess that sin and repent of it where our happiness and joy is restored, our vitality, our strength comes back. But it's a blessing from the Lord when we are wandering away into sin and the Lord lays His hand upon us so we feel the weight of that conviction and it affects our physical body. So just as one example of how our physical body affects our spiritual and vice versa. Now, that's an example of the spirit Affecting the physical, but let me give you the opposite our physical body affecting the spiritual. So, this is in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. This is Elijah. So, this is after his um, inc- incident there on Mount Carmel with all the 450 prophets of Baal. You'd say he was on, having like a mountaintop. Experience spiritually speaking, right? He he uh, got to prove in front of a wicked king and in front of the nation of Israel that G- Yahweh is the one true God. Right, the prophets of Baal all morning and all day long were crying out to Baal, trying to get him to send fire down to consume the sacrifice. And then it's nighttime and Elijah's turn and he gets up there and he douses his sacrifice with water so much so that it runs over and fills up a little moat that he dug around the altar, and then he prays to the Lord, and in the nighttime, God lights up the sky with the greatest fireworks display you've ever seen, and consumes the whole sacrifice, the rocks and the dirt and the water, everything. And then Elijah calls on the people to slay the prophets of Baal. It's like epic win for God, and it's like the nation has seen and been proven that Baal's a false god, and Yahweh is the only true God. You need to worship Him. But after that, Jezebel's like, "Oh boy, I'm I'm going to kill you, Elijah." So Elijah runs. He runs a long, long distance, and now he is in the wilderness, fleeing for his life after having seen God displays a miraculous power. He's afraid. He has run. He's exhausted. And so in First Kings chapter 19, verse 4, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So you see here, Elijah's in a really kind of pitif- pitiful spiritual state. He's asking God to kill him. I don't want to keep going, God. This is too hard. Take my life. Try no better than my father's. But then in verse 5, he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Elijah, knock it off. You need to stop that. Trust in the Lord. No, he doesn't say that. He says, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. So here, I love this, here he is exhausted from running away. He is not thinking rightly about God, even though he had just seen God display this miraculous power, He's hungry, tired and God and, and God had made him to be such this uh, intertwined his soul and his body that in his exhaustion, in his hunger, he's not thinking rightly. His heart, spiritually speaking, is not in the right place. He's God, just kill me. Right, he's being pitiful. He's in a depression. He's in a funk. And God first ministers to his physical needs so that then he can think rightly about his spiritual needs. He says, get up, eat some food, go back to bed. I love that Snickers commercial, right? You're not you when you're hungry. That's what this is. And that's so important to think about when you think about in the biblical counseling idea, right? If you're talking with somebody who's struggling with sin, you have to be thinking about what's going on in their life physically or vice versa. Somebody could be in a real funk And it could be because of just unrepentant sin going on in their life, unconfessed sin. I just feel so depressed, so discouraged all the time. It could be that. Or it could be that there's some physical malady going on, some physical hardship that they're going through, and they're exhausted, they're tired. I'm really depressed, I'm just really discouraged. How much sleep are you getting? None. Oh, well, that's going to impact your spiritual well-being. And if I say, it could be a combination of both. And so God has made us to be a body-soul, And not just compartmentalized, or not just have a soul within a body, but we're so intertwined. Man is a body and a spirit, and they impact each other. You'll see other words uh, throughout the Scriptures uh, that talk about our composition, uh, we have a heart, right? You see the uh, by, uh, not just the physical organ that pumps blood through your body, but to, when you see the scriptures talk about the heart, it's often talking about what we call the your mission control center, the seat of your will, your volition, your emotions, your thoughts. You see the scriptures talk about your spirit and your soul. That's talking usually about the whole person. Again, not just the immaterial part of you, but especially in the Old Testament. When you see the word soul, it usually means the whole person. It's not just talking about your spirit or immaterial. Um, we'll also see the words use flesh. Whenever you see the word use flesh, like the flesh of man, it's often talking about just your physical body, but it also can be used theologically to talk about the weakness of man, how man is so weak. You see the conscience talked about. That's another part that God gives us a conscience. It's the part of your mind that judges the morality of something. That is a gift from the Lord. And so you see these things, and there's even a lot of different words in the Old Testament particularly used to describe just man physically. So like, um, we were, uh, since we are the sons of Adam, uh, the word Adam in Hebrew is often used to talk about man, because, and it's also a word similar used to describe dust, because man was described describe, uh, formed from dust. But there's a couple of other words. There's a word called gibor in the Hebrew, and that's used to describe man in his most strong state, uh, whereas Adam kind of refers and reminds us of our weakness. We're made from dust. Um, but gibor is what you would see when you read about David's mighty men. That's the term gabor or Gibareem, the mighty men that followed David and slayed all these people. Um, so all these different words convey a different um, meaning and understanding as we think about how God created us. But in general, a lot of the words used to describe man remind us of our creatureliness and our weakness. So that's, that's kind of a real quick survey of the terminology used to describe are uh, us as created beings? Any any questions about any of those terms or anything we've talked about so far? I was wondering, the soul and the spirit. The soul is something that we have before we oh that's a good yeah good question so soul and spirit are um not nece- not they're somewhat interchangeable right it's uh they're describing the same thing the immaterial aspect of our person um but why why you have two different words so there's always, uh, there's always a reason why. And so spirit, often, uh, when you see the word spirit used in the text, it's emphasizing man, the part of man that's empowered by God to do. So it's the, part, the invisible part of us that has intellect, will, and emotions. And again, the word soul doesn't just refer to the immaterial, the invisible part of us, but the whole person, the whole of us. So whenever you see soul, particularly in the Old Testament, Think not just spirit, don't think just invisible, think your whole person. So, you think like in the Psalms, like my soul longs for the Lord. It's not just talking about the invisible person, but everything. A non Christian still has a spirit also. Absolutely. Okay, so. Yeah. So, you might think about passages like in Hebrews, where you have like uh, the, the, the word of the Lord that uh, uh, cuts through joint or bone and marrow, soul and spirit. That is not teaching that uh, there are three parts to man, that there's a body, soul, and spirit. Um, it is, that is just a literary way of making a point, of emphasizing the, the, the um, uh, power of God's Word. Like If it were possible to split your soul, it, God's Word could do it. But there's, it's not teaching that there's three parts of man. There's just your body... And your soul. So, uh, just uh, in case anybody's thinking about passages like that, or another passage you might think about, like in Deuteronomy, "Love the Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength." Right? You think about it's like it's, you know, it's like dividing man up and all these parts. It's, again, it's just doing it. It's a literary idea. It's like it's saying, "Love God with everything, with your whole person, with everything that you are." And it's not saying, but you have all these different parts to you that so you don't have a. a his spirit and his soul, same thing. Any other questions? All right. Well, if you think of something later, uh, don't you know, shoot your hand up or shout out, whatever. Um, so let's look. Let's talk about um, man in the image of God. So Genesis chapter one is uh, verses twenty six through twenty seven is a key passage here. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So according to this passage, man resembles God in some sense. One Old Testament scholar comments, quote, "...traditional interpretation of the doctrine of the imago Dei," that's the Latin for image of God, proposed that man is in God's image in the sense that he shares much of what God is. That is, man, like God, has personality, intelligence, feeling, and will." To be in God's image is indeed to be God-like, though obviously in a highly nuanced and restricted sense. The difference between the transcendent God and mere mortals are so vast, however, as to require a better explanation of the Imago Dei. On that focuses not so much on ontological equivalence as on functional comparisons. And that came from uh, Eugene uh, Merrill's book The Everlasting Dominion. So, when we talk about the image of God, we have to just be clear up front. The Bible does not define what the image of God means. It, there are no verses that precede this passage or after that says, an image of God means this. And so, we can uh, extrapolate, we can uh, form logical conclusions based on who what we know about God. There are basically three... Um, Ways people think about the image of God. There is the uh, relation when defining the image of God. There's a relational aspect of what it means to be in the image of God. There's a analogical and a dominion, and so. Um, And so relational would be the idea that when, what it means to be in the image of God is that God created us like Him where we can be in relationship with others. We can, what do you need to have to be in a relationship with people? You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to have feelings, emotions, talk, see, Right. These are all things that God can do and he created us in his image and we can do them too. So that'd be one aspect of understanding, uh, what it means to be in the image of God. There's the, uh, the analogical or another way you could say is ontological, like talking about our very being, that we are rational and moral creatures like God is. God is a God of order. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that. We see His orderliness in creation as well, um, but that is what anal- analogical means. It's, a, again, another way to be like ontological. We have, a, we have a soul. There's an immaterial aspect of us, just like God has an, His spirit. Um, and then the dominion uh, would be the idea that to be in the image of God is to rule, to rule over creation, just like God does. We see that exercise very early on in Genesis. Um, Genesis 1.28 says, "'God blessed them, and God said to them, "'Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, "'and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, "'and over the birds of the sky, "'and over every living thing that moves on the earth.'" Sorry, that verse comes right on the heels of saying God made us in His image. So the very next thing he says, after he says He made us in His image, he says He blessed them, go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So God created us and gave us a mandate right from the get-go that still applies to us today. So being made in the image of God means that man is to rule the earth as Yahweh's viceroy, a representative of the king. Just like an ambassador must be aware that his conduct is a reflection of his homeland, so we must realize that our conduct reflects our creator. So what what with what type of skills and abilities did God endow man in order that he might be able to rule on his behalf? What are some things that you guys think that he has given us to ref- to do that, to carry that out? Mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely a rational uh, ability to think right ability to plan uh, ability to uh, contemplate absolutely ability to under just understand things right I mean, he's sitting here telling Adam and Eve, and Moses is telling them as he's written the Pentateuch here and telling all of Israel, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth." I'm reading these words; you understand them, right? That speaks to the rationality of your mind that you can understand what I'm saying. God created you to be able to hear from Him and understand what He's saying. What else? Simple observations. If you think, oh, this is a silly answer, I don't want to say it. No, it's good. Remember, simple observations. What do you need to subdue things? Strength. Strength. Appendages, fingers, arms, feet, legs to move, right? He says, fill the earth. That implies you got to get out in the world. Move away. Don't all congregate. That's what the Tower of Babel folks got in trouble for. They're like, We ain't going to spread out. It was a direct rebellion against God. I ain't gonna do it. I'm just gonna stay right here, build a big tower. It wasn't the tower that got them in trouble? It was the staying put. Because God said, "Be fill the earth, get out of here, go spread out." It so implies that we have the ability to move, rule over the fish in the sea. Yeah. I don't have an answer, but I have a question. Yes. Um, how is the command of man to rule? Different than on the fourth day, the stars are commanded to rule the skies. To rule the skies? A good question. Um, how is it different? Well, different in that stars aren't sentient, right? So, what then, since they're not sentient creatures, right? They're just matter. I don't know what that means for them to rule. It. Yeah, I would just think just like they do. I, they, we don't do it as much today because we're so reliant on the internet and everything but the stars and the ma- the, the pattern, uh, the elliptical pattern of the earth and seeing different stars at different times of seasons helped govern It helped guide ships and, um, in that sense, like help people navigate. So in the ruling and then also just like the way the sun and the moon govern the timing of day and the passing of the seasons, that's how I would see the rule of the stars, the sun, um, that would be the, their governing power. They have control over our planet, too, right? We revolve around the sun, and the distance to that sun impacts our seasons. It rules over us in that sense. Any other questions? Does that sound too crazy? Good question, though. What do you guys think is the significance of image bearing, our bearing the image of God? How, what's the how does that impact the way we we relate to each other? Makes us more like brothers and sisters. Makes us like more like brothers and sisters, as opposed to... Just being independent. Independent, yeah. I mean, if you compare the lack of that to the animal kingdom... Yeah, it's a good comparison. They don't relate to each other at all in that way. Yes, good. Yeah, very good comparison there to the animal kingdom. We're very different from the animal kingdom because of our image bearing and the way we relate to each other. Animals act on instinct, intuition. They do not have rational minds. Remember, they don't have the breath of God in them. They do not have a soul. So I might rub some people wrong here, but animals will not be in heaven. There might be animals in heaven, but not. I'm not saying like like when your dog dies or your cat dies that they are in heaven waiting for you. I'm sorry. I heard that on WCIC just this past week, and it made me so mad. <laughs> It's like tons, tons of people are listening to this, and they're spouting un, unbiblical things. So was, yeah, that they, they don't—they're not made in the image of God. They're not made in the image of God. I remember my grandma. I was just starting seminary. My grandma's little dog died, and she said, "Tyson is my dog in heaven." And I said it gently. I was like, "Sorry, Grandma." This, and I said it. They're not made in the image of God. They don't have a soul. And she goes, "You're supposed to tell me they are." <laughs> <laughs> Where God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, gives us one of our first important applications of the image of God. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you see there that the whole idea of murder being bad is grounded in being the image-bearer of God. And that's so different. If you have, uh, if you talk to someone who has an evolutionary worldview, a mindset, they believe in evolution, they're an atheist, an agnostic, whatever they want to call themselves, they have no moral foundation for saying anything is good or bad. If we're just a bunch of people evolved from apes, or if we're just a bunch of stardust, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if somebody kills you. And we say, well, it matters to me. And you say, that's because you are created in the image of God. You have inherent value and inherent worth because God created you in His image. Outside of a biblical worldview, there is no reason to be kind to people. And that's why everyone who is not a Christian, every unbeliever is inconsistent in their worldview. They steal from the Bible all the time, and they will not admit it. And they will get mad at you when you point it out. But they are borrowing from our Christian worldview. They're borrowing from the the Scriptures. That's why many times, you know, if you talk with somebody and um, you say, uh, ask them, you know, do you believe that, you know, Holocaust was wrong? And most people will say yes. And again, they're being inconsistent because then you say, why? Why was that wrong? Because most people who are not Christians will say, well, morality is determined by the community. It's determined by the majority. Okay, well then, if you're in the majority of Hitler's army, who's to say that they were wrong? They were the majority. They can kill people if they want. You no, know, Morality lies outside of man. It's created by God, because it's embedded in who he is and his character. And when he creates us in his own image... To shed the blood of man is a direct attack against God. When you attack another image bearer, I think uh, it's just one profound implication of the image of God is just in thinking about how we even relate to unbelievers in loving them, even when they persecute us. I the I, uh, recall, I think it was in John Calvin's commentary where he said that uh, we have to be careful not to view man as the sum total of his sins. But to rem- remind ourselves that even unbelievers, even if they do a heinous evil, are still image bearers of God. And they have inherent value in worth. And as long as we have breath in our bodies and that unbeliever has breath in their bodies, we ought to proclaim the gospel to them for that very reason and to love them. But that does not negate justice. If somebody does something evil, like murder, then their life is required of them as an act of just, uh, just act from God, as declared there in Genesis 9-6. Titus chapter 3, there's several times throughout that, um, in the New Testament, remind us that we are to do good works. Galatians 6-10 tells us to do good to all people, especially those of the household of God. Why do should we do good things to people? Because they are image bearers of God. But most importantly, the significance of image bearers Bearing is our relationship to God the fact that he made us image bearers means that he intended for us to first and foremost relate to him he created us with the ability to will to think to feel so that we could do that with him not because of any felt need that God had you know he's in eternity past sitting there with uh, the son the spirit and the father and just like I really am bored I really wish some people would just shower me with praise and glory. I'm lonely. So I think I'll create man so that they can worship No. Remember that we talked in, in last quarter that God uh, is independent. He does not depend on us for anything. We do not add to his glory, and we do not take away from his glory. We cannot do that either of those things. We do glorify him, but that doesn't add anything to his glory. God created us to display his glory. And part of the way he does that is making us mirrors, image bearers. When you think about us it, like a, when you think about the image bearing, think about it like a mirror and we reflect God's glory to the rest of the world and we reflect it back to him as well. And then what happened though with sin, and we're going to talk about this next Sunday, is we pointed the mirror instead of pointing it at God, and reflecting His glory back to Him, we look down at the ground, and when you see the, the light of God's glory shining against us, and we're looking at the ground, you see a shadow. And we got consumed with our own shadow. And we think, hey, that's pretty neat. I'm pretty awesome. And we you know what? I don't want to listen to God anymore. I want to do my own thing. And then you had the Fall. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow: the the fall and its impact on the image of God, and it's going to have tremendous uh, implications as we then move on into studying sin. So. If you have any questions, you can come and ask me afterwards. But you guys are all free to go. Uh, if you have questions that prop up in your minds throughout the week, write them down, and we can talk about them next Sunday. I do really want this to, you know, have lots of time to discuss and ask questions, and whether you know whatever pops in your mind as we're talking about the text, you know, if it's like well. The stars, they govern, right? And it's like, well, that's a good question. It's a, from a good observation in the text. So we're going to hopefully put you guys to work and really uh, uh, sharpen your tools on your tool belt about uh, making observations in the text and deriving your theology from the text of what God says. So hopefully we will, will be very well practiced by the end of this st- uh, quarter. So have a good rest of your day and a good week, guys. Thanks.